You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. His dimming eyes squinted in the fading light. His weathered hands trembled as he wrote. The words came quickly now. They had to. He was dying and he knew it. Death had found all of his friends too early, too painfully for most. Of the twelve, he was the last one. He had walked with Jesus down dusty Galilean roads. He had rested his head on Jesus' shoulder in the upper room. He sat and ate with him on the beach after that first Easter morning. And now, with nearly nine decades of life over his shoulder, with a young church under him and a hostile world pressing in around him, the Apostle John had one aspiration, to preach the gospel, pure and simple. I get that. This morning starts our 10-week summer teaching series called First John, That You May Know. And I couldn't be more excited. Here's why. I believe the church exists for one reason and one reason only, to become a people absolutely obsessed with the proclamation and the demonstration of the gospel. I think that's what we ought to be about. We are here to orient our lives around one all-important, eternally significant, unavoidable question, and here it is, what will you do with Jesus? If we are not clear on that, if that doesn't get us out of bed in the morning, give us joy for our days and hope for our lives, we are being spiritually irresponsible to light up the dark world around us. What will you do with Jesus? It's the only question that matters. It was the driving force that allowed the church to thrive and flourish in the first century, and it'll be the driving force that allows the church to thrive and flourish in the 21st century. Our world does not need louder opinions crowding the headlines, but lasting truth that captivates our hearts. We don't need something shiny to distract us. We need something deep to define us. We need a clarion call from a courageous voice who can show us how to be rooted in truth and reaching in love. In short, I believe that the church's vitality depends on the gospel's centrality. I'll say that again because it sounded kind of good. The church's vitality depends on the gospel's centrality. And if you resonate at all with those ideas, these next 10 weeks are going to be for you. So this morning, I want to introduce you to John. We're going to be in 1 John 
chapter 1, and so you can turn there if you like, you can flip there on your phone, or you can follow along on the screens in just a few minutes, but while you're turning there, flipping there, first things first, who is John? So on the stage of the New Testament, there are three major characters named John. Let's shine a light on each one of them. The first John that we meet in the gospel is John the Baptist. This is Jesus' cousin. He was a preacher, and he was the first to recognize Jesus for who he was. The way he introduced Jesus is he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And from that moment on, John the Baptist shifted all of the spotlight from his preaching to Jesus' teaching. That's John the Baptist. But then the third John, the last one that we meet, is a guy also named John Mark. He wasn't one of the original 12 disciples, but he's pretty close. Good friends with Peter and Paul. You meet him in the book of Acts for the first time. Later, God used him to write the gospel that bears his second name, the gospel of Mark. But that's not the John that we're talking about here. This John, who takes center stage in the New Testament, especially for our summer this year, is John the Disciple. We're going to spend all summer with him, so you're going to get to know his heart really well. But for now, just a brief personal sketch. This is the John who, hearing Jesus' call felt the fishing that slipped through his fingers and into the Sea of Galilee. This is John, who leaned on Jesus' shoulder in the upper room and begged to sit next to him in his kingdom. This is John, who was the only disciple present at the crucifixion and who kind of notably outran Peter to the empty tomb. But it's John's story after Jesus. That's really what's most compelling to me. Because John had actually walked with Jesus, sat with Jesus, and suffered with Jesus, John kind of became kindling on the fire of the early church. He preached the gospel clearly. He made disciples courageously, and he even did prison time for it. Then starting around 66 AD, scholars aren't really sure, John pastored the church in Ephesus after Paul founded it and Timothy led it. No pressure, right? How'd you like to be that pastor? Follow up Paul and Timothy? No thanks. But he was in Ephesus for about 15 years until a Roman emperor named Domitian came on the throne and started deporting major Christian leaders. So Domitian, seeing John, tried to keep him under wraps and moved him to the desert island of Patmos for 15 more years where he lived in exile until Domitian was assassinated in about 96 AD. And then John was able to come back to Ephesus where he pastored for two more years until he died in 98 AD. You could call him John the Stalwart, John the Faithful, John the Tenderhearted. There's even this ancient story that I really love that when John was too old and frail to walk, but not too old and frail to preach, like, come on, that's what I want. That he would be carried from house church to house church in Ephesus and just preach the same message over and over and over again. Little children love each other. And his book, First John, is obsessed with this idea of love. You'll see that this summer. But that brings me to the second question before we dive in. Kind of two sort of twin questions. Who's he writing this letter to and why is he writing to them? Well, John was the last living disciple of Jesus, and so he was a relatively well-known figure in early church history. He carried some authority. His words had weight. And so while he's likely living in and writing in Ephesus while he writes the letter of 1 John, 
John's writing probably would have been circulated around the Christian world at the time, kind of like we would retweet or share content from our favorite pastors or Christian leaders or authors today. And the Holy Spirit's words through John's pen were desperately needed. Here's the situation. The church was being attacked from all angles. Internally, false teachers are rising up and heresies are sprouting, pulling the church off its focus. Still, the church grew. Outside, emperors who used to see Jesus as interesting rabbi now look at Jesus as a threatening revolutionary. Still, the church grew. Publicly, the church's image was moving from a quaint idea to a dangerous minority. Still, the church grew. And into that world of theological tumults, political upheaval, and fracturing faith, John, this thoughtful, steady, gospel-centered, Jesus-loving, church-equipping old man, now likely in his upper 80s, wants to provide a faltering church with an unshakable certainty based around one question, what will you do with Jesus? So with that question boiling on the front burner, let's get to it. First John chapter 1, 1 through 10. This text breaks neatly into two halves, one bold proclamation at the start, and then three bold truth claims to follow it up. Let's start with the proclamation up front. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, I love a good tongue twister, but this is a little over the top. Add to the fact that it's a theological tongue twister. And you're like, that which was from the, which, from the, we to proclaim to for you. You're like, John, come on, buddy. Like, this is not how you're supposed to start a letter. This is really hard. So, a few quick details just to make sense of this. First, did you catch all, like, the tactile like up close and personal stuff that he says here. That which we have seen, that which we've touched, with, with that which we've heard, I can't even say it. This is like John being up close and personal with whoever he is going to introduce us to. Now why is that significant? Because John wants us to know that whoever he is about to talk about is a real person. As real as the person sitting next to you this morning, as real as the Starbucks barista who handed you your coffee, as real as me sitting or standing up here talking to you. You know this person. They're real. You can reach out and touch them. So John wants us to know that this life he is about to talk about, embodied in this person he's going to introduce us to, is a real person. Number one. Second little detail. We breezed right over it. How's he introduced it? The very first phrase. He says, that which was from the beginning. It's a very awesome phrase. There's only two other books in the Bible that start that way. One is the Gospel of John, where he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But what other book in the Bible starts off with in the beginning? Tell me. 
Genesis, right? Now, this is John's little clue. He's saying, just like this person I'm going to introduce you to is a real flesh and blood person, he's also eternally existent. He was there in the beginning. And so John starts off this letter with two seemingly impossibly reconcilable truths. He is a real person, and he's God. Third detail, that word proclaim. Did you catch that? It comes up in verse 2. It comes up again in verse 3. And then again, we're going to see it in verse 5. Now, follow me on this. There are three Greek words that John could have used here for the word proclaim. The first one is proclaim with a sense of urgency. Okay, it's the kind of word you'd use if your house was on fire. You'd go, hey, come on, there's something. I got some bad news, but we got to do something about it. Okay, it's typically associated with a warning or like repentance involved. John the Baptist, when he preached, he proclaimed. It was this negative kind of like, repent, the kingdom of God is near. I need to tell you an urgent message. Something bad is about to happen. And we would have expected him to use that here because the gospel is an urgent message and it involves repentance, but that's not what he uses here. The second Greek word that John could have used is almost the opposite of that. It's a positive message. It's like a trumpet blast, like an announcement. And it's the Greek word that you'd use when you are announcing the installation of a new king. It's what the angels said when they announced Jesus' birth, interestingly. It's the word euangelion, where we get evangelism and gospel. These words, it's a positive message. It's a wide word for a wide audience. You may have expected that, but that's not what he uses here. The word proclaim that John uses here is proclaim with factual inspection. This is him saying, not, hey, I've got great news. Or, hey, I've got terrible news. This is, hey, I've got something I need you to check out. It's like the ancient version of show and tell. Like, come on, you need to see this thing. Now, why is that so significant? <laughs> Jesus isn't just a name you say at the end of a prayer before dinner. Jesus does not want to be clinically studied objectively evaluated, or distantly appreciated. Jesus wants to make a difference in your life. An actual, real difference. And John's heart, with over half a century of personal experience with this Jesus in the rearview mirror, is aching from the onset to show and tell anyone who will listen, Jesus is real and he's interested in you. I want to stop for a minute before we move on. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's interested in you? Think about this for a minute. This is a very crucial thing to get because nothing else in this book is going to make any sense until you wrap your head around that. It's one thing to say that Jesus existed. Like, yeah, I believe there was a Jesus of Nazareth and like he lived on the other side of the world a couple thousand years ago and he had some really great followers kind of amassed a little following and started a movement. And he taught us about, you know, peace and love. He was a good moral teacher. And man, what happened to him was really terrible, how they crucified him. And that's one thing. But have you moved past that 
to understand that this Jesus is profoundly interested in you. Not just that he tolerates you, or he's aware of you, or had you been there, he would have treated you nicely. But he's interested in you, he knows you, he pursues you, he wants you, and he wants you to know him. Do you really understand that? Do you really, really believe that? That he is interested, his heart inclines toward you. That's what John wants us to get. Before he gets to the crux of his message, there's a fourth detail I want us to see. Because I think it so beautifully reveals John's heart for this church Let's take a look at verse 4 again. Can we throw that one back up on the screen? Verse 4. I want you to read this one again. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, here's what I would have expected. We're writing these things so that your joy may be complete. All right, that's the heart of a pastor. It's like everything I'm doing, I want to give away. I want you to understand how amazing this Jesus is. Please take him. I'm writing this so that you can have joy. What's with the our joy? And what's with the word complete? What's John getting out of this whole show and tell thing? Here's what I think he's about. So Mandy and I are parents. We have three kids. Joseph is 15, Karsten is 13, and Hannah is 11. Pray for us. So the other night, I'm sitting out on the deck. It was this nice, like, quiet summer evening, and um, I'm just sitting out there, and it's a little bit around sunset, kind of getting dark, and um, just having some quiet. And I look in kind of through our deck door, like window thing, whatever. And Joseph is in there um, sitting on the couch. And he's just kind of like looking blankly ahead. He's 15, so that look. And um, so I'm like, well, this is, this is interesting. So I, I opened the door and I said, hey, what, what's going on, buddy? You okay? And he says, um, he says, oh, I'm just waiting for you. And he says, uh, do you want to read Psalm 37 tonight? Like, my jaw hit the floor. Like, I'm getting emotional even thinking about it. Because, like, I couldn't get in there fast enough, right? I'm like, whatever I was thinking of doing out here, it doesn't matter. Like, get me in here. And so for 45 minutes, we just sat, and we did the REAP Bible study method, read, examine, apply, pray, with Psalm 37 together. It was like the best night of my week. Highlight, right? That's what John's talking about here. There is something inexpressible, something very deep, when the people that you love start to love the Savior that you worship. And it doesn't have to be your kids. It can be anybody. And it's no guarantee for success. I'm not that naive. The road ahead is fraught with peril. We understand that. But here's the principle. Joy in Christ is only complete when that joy is shared. <laughs> joy in Christ is only complete when that joy is shared. There's something that happens to you where you go, oh man, you're loving the same Jesus that I'm loving. How beautiful. Now, what is the crux of John's message? What is he so eager to show and tell? Verse 5, coming up in a minute. Here's what John's going to do, and I want you to watch for it. John is going to make three very bold truth claims, and we're going to spend about the next 20 minutes here. The first truth claim is easiest to spot, and it's right there in verse 5. But for the second and third truth claims, John builds this structure of five if statements, and you'll see them here in just a minute. And he embeds these second and third truth claims kind of in the middle of these if statements. Okay, so I just want you to watch for it as we go. They're a bit harder to spot, but you'll get it. You ready? 
Oh, come on, really? You ready? Come on, there we go. All right, truth claim number one, God is holy. Truth claim number one, God is holy. You see this in verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is holy. That's really easy to see right there in the text. And John uses this beautiful, deeply profound metaphor to describe God's holiness. What's he say? God is what? Light. Light. Light warms. Light comforts. Light also exposes. Light is unapproachable. Light is other than me. Light has its source outside of me. And John is so emphatic about this vision of God's holiness that he doesn't stop at God as light. His description deepens when he adds the exclamation point, and in him there's no darkness at all. (laughs) I can't imagine that. I really can't. Why? Because when I look to myself, every kind gesture from me is tainted with a little bit of selfishness, isn't it? You're the same way. Behind every generous gift is lurking a little, what's in it for me? Every just action is kind of smeared with a little, hey, I really would have appreciated a thank you very much. That's not God. God is perfectly pure. He's constantly generous. He's impeccably just. We have no idea what that's like. We only know God's holiness by its absence. It's like the vapor trail of a plane that's passed by. Or like the wisp of smoke from a flame that we just didn't quite catch. It's this hole of perfection left in us by a perfection we've never known and are haunted by. C.S. Lewis hit on this when he said, I find in myself a hunger that cannot be met by anything in this world, and the only possible explanation is that I was meant for another world. That inexplicable hunger that you have in your heart, that craving for something that just cannot be met by anything in this world, this inner impulse, this feeling that's deep down in there, what that is, is really a hunger for God himself. God's holiness is the starting point for understanding everything that John is going to say. It's easy to see right there in the text. He's light. There's no darkness at all. So with truth claim number one on the table, let's get to these if statements. Now watch John go back and forth. Here's verse 6. He says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. See how he's talking about us? Now watch them flip. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, now he's talking about Jesus. Now he's going to go back. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Yikes, that sounds really strong. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 
So you've got this stack of if statements. Statements 1, 3, and 5 talk about us. Statements 2 and 4 in the middle talk about Jesus. And so since John starts with us, let's start with us as well. Truth claim number one, God is holy. Truth claim number two, I'm not. So not. Look at verse 6 again. Let's take a quick peek. Here's what he says. This is the, or sorry, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, everybody's a hypocrite. I am not what I project, and neither are you. We're all walking in darkness to some small measure. Join the party. Sounds bad. Get to verse 8. We say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, this is an interesting one, because it's tempting to deny that I have a sin problem, right? We do this all the time. We justify it. We explain it away. Well, the reason that I did this is because she did that. (laughs) How's that work? Never. Why do we deny we have a sin problem? Because sin is embarrassing to admit and deal with, and I am deeply prideful. So it's easy to go, no, I don't have... Maybe that guy, not me. Gets worse. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, stop. How many times have you heard this? I've never done anything really bad. I've never killed anybody. I've never cheated on my spouse. I've never blah, 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 right? And all of a sudden we start ranking sins. Where did we get that terrible idea? Ranking sins? <laughs> So if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Do you want to make the God of the universe a liar? I don't think you want to take that on. And his word is not in us. This is the most asinine sounding thing of all. To say, no, I've never broken God's law. I am perfect. I have no problem. Come on. I have sinned. I do sin. Why? Because I am a sinner. All of those things are so counterintuitive to who we actually are as a culture. They are so counter to who we th- how we think, but they are so necessary to acknowledge on the road to spiritual freedom. And here's the thing. We live in an algorithm world. Let me tell you what that means. It means that all of your social media feeds, all of your Amazon Prime shopping habits, all of your Google map tracking, all of those news reports that you consume on your phone, your computer, on your cable TV, all of those things are conspiring against you to spoon feed you content that just deepens the belief that you already have. Just to give you more of what you already want. If you don't believe me, quick example. Marshall family is going on a road trip to Colorado this summer, so I am shopping online for Yeti coolers. Right? Oh my gosh, those things are expensive. What in the world? For the next day and a half, Yeti cooler ads show up everywhere. You had this experience? Your life is conspiring to give you more of what you already want, and so your life becomes this like bike tire that finds this rut It just goes deeper and deeper every time you get in there until you can't think outside of, reject anything outside of, or accept anything outside of what you already believe. And here's what this has to do with the gospel. Initially, the gospel is nothing you want, but everything you need. 
The gospel is offensive. And it ought to be up front. It is jarringly, frustratingly, beautifully, wonderfully offensive. The gospel jerks the wheel of my life out of the rut and gets me onto a much better path that I could never imagine. The gospel is nothing I want but everything I need. Let me get practical. Nothing in me wants to see me as the source of my own problems. That I am selfish. That I have contributed somehow to the pain that I see in the world. That is a deeply offensive message, but it's deeply true. The gospel offends me in three ways. I want to hit these really quickly while we're here. It offends my authority, it offends my autonomy, and it offends my ability. Let's take all three of those in stride. First, the gospel offends my authority. That I am captain of my own ship and that I know best. I am the boss of me. The gospel offends my autonomy. That I can do just fine on my own. Thank you very much. I don't need you. Thirdly, the gospel offends my ability that I can handle whatever comes my way. I'm good. How does the gospel offend those? First, authority. I'm the captain of my own ship, really? I don't even deserve to be on the deck of my own ship. How often have I shipwrecked relationships because life with Brandon Marshall at the helm is no good? Autonomy? I'm best on my own. Really, I'm worse on my own. Life seas are way too chaotic and disruptive for me to be the only one on board my ship. I need people to help me, people who love me and love God, who can speak truth to me. And ability? I have blown so many holes in the hull of my life that water is coming in fast and I can't bail it out fast enough. I am utterly unable to save myself from going straight to the bottom. And that is the gospel truth behind authority, autonomy, and ability. Now, here's what the gospel message does first. Until I square with the fact that God is holy and I am not, I will try everything I can to become authoritative, autonomous, and able in my little corner of my world. And when life eventually capsizes my little boat, as it always does, I get frustrated, I get disillusioned, and I get bitter. Anybody relate to those feelings? Sure you do. That's our world right now. Frustrated, disillusioned, and bitter. And that's not the worst part. Because when those calcify and you sit with those feelings long enough, frustration, disillusion, and bitter grow up to become anger, fear, and isolation. Tell me we're not on the cusp of that. And John's word for me and my word for you is that you were made for more than anger, fear, and isolation. But you don't get over those things by pretending they're not there or sweeping them under a rug or trying muscle through them. You've got to let Jesus take them from you. Releasing my authority over my own life, repenting of my autonomy, and confessing my complete inability. And that leads to truth claim number three. We've established that God is holy. That's truth claim number one. That I am not. That's truth claim number two. Which on their own leaves us like completely hopeless and powerless and like wallowing in our own worthlessness. But guys, there is hope. 
Verse 7. Here's what he says. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another. Okay, sounds great. How? The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then down in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the third truth claim, that Jesus is able. And that is the gospel. That word cleanse shows up there twice. It's pretty important. Whenever you're studying your Bible, look for words that are repeated. Cleanse. What's that mean? It means that dark spot lurking in the hidden corner of Brandon Marshall's heart can be made clean. Cleanse. That deep secret that you swore you would never tell anybody. You don't have to live in fear of that anymore. It's cleansed. It means that long ago regret that you wish you could take back. You don't have to be a slave to that anymore. It's cleansed. How? It's right there in the middle of verse 7. What's he say? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son. Sounds gross. How's that work? Here's the deal. Let's line these up. God is holy. He can't be around sin. I am so not. I am steeped in sin down to my socks. And the only way I can be made clean is by the blood of a perfect sacrifice, a spotless lamb, like John the Baptist would say, a sinless life, Jesus, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Again, Jesus is able. Not Jesus plus my good behavior. Not Jesus plus my intentions. Isn't it interesting how the New Testament letter that is obsessed with this idea of love begins with such a high and lofty view of God? Why is that? Like when I think of the word holiness, God's holiness, I typically pair it with these other like hard attributes like, like wrath and sovereignty and power. Right? And then when I think of love, like God's loving, I go like, well, yeah, he's, he's patient, he's kind, he's compassionate. He's merciful. And yet for John, at the onset, these two things are inseparable. You don't get one without the other. You don't get to pick up God's attributes like an a la carte diner menu. Why is that so important? Because until I worship God in the splendor of his holiness, I will never understand the wonder of his grace. Put another way, the unbelievable notion that God could love me is made all the more wondrous by the fact that he actually does. He has no need of me. He isn't dependent on me. He isn't lonely without me. I don't fill up any deficiency in him or make up for a shortfall in his perfection, but grace Grace is so amazing because it's illogical. Grace makes no sense. Grace is not, this isn't how it should be, God. It goes against what I think. But grace says that the holy God who is on his own, complete perfection, loves me, although I've given him countless reasons why he shouldn't. 
Yet still he pursues, still he loves. In the cross and the blood poured out, he is holy and good. He is perfect and gracious. And if the Apostle John could reach across time, he'd say, North Canton Chapel, you want to make a difference in your world? Do you? You want to matter? You want to see lives changed? Really? You want to see hope restored to the deep and dark places of the human heart? Keep the gospel central. The church's vitality rests on the gospel's centrality. So here's the message in case you missed it. God is holy. We only feel that by its absence. The whole left by a perfection that we will never know. We are not. We only feel that in moments of painful, private, personal honesty. And Jesus is able. And that's the gospel. Pure and simple and beautiful. So there are two groups um, here in the room or watching online today. You don't know Jesus personally yet. Maybe you've never said, okay, I get it. He's for me. I'm scared of what this means. You'll concede that he maybe existed once. But the thought of a personal God who is interested in you sounds too good to believe. And let me join with John and invite you to get up close and personal with this Jesus. He is waiting for you. You start today. You confess your sins and accept his righteousness and say, Jesus, I need you to do what I can't do on my own. That's how that relationship starts. Hear me, you have absolutely nothing to lose and everything in the world to gain. Second group, and I know this just because I've talked with a lot of you and I know you're feeling this way. You know Jesus, and maybe you have for a while, but maybe your light is dim or it's dimming. You're tired, you're disconnected, maybe you're angry, maybe you're alone, maybe you're afraid. Maybe you're coming out of a very spiritually exhausting season. Me too. And so we're going to close in a second, but uh, before we do, I want to leave us with kind of a parting image to sort of make this stick. I'm willing to bet that everybody in this room has a cell phone in your pocket, your purse, or sitting next to you. Go ahead and take it out. And on that cell phone is a flashlight. And I want you to turn it on. And if you don't know where that is, find your nearest millennial. They will help you. It's sort of joking. There you go. You got it. I want you just to hold it up a little bit. There you go. Take a look around this room. If you are a Christian, this is your job in our world. The darker our world becomes, the more his light is needed. And don't you dare hide it behind something less worthy. You have one message. You have one truth to proclaim. We have one hope, and his name is Jesus, period. It's his cause and his mission that we represent. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Christ yet, just look around. There are a ton of people here who would love to talk with you. If you're here this morning and your light is dim or dimming, look around. There are a ton of people who would love to pray with you and encourage you. If your iPhone battery holds out, let's sing the next song with this kind of, kind of going in our pockets or in our hands. Let me pray. Lord, you are light, and we need it. Lord, our world is dark, and we feel it. 
Jesus, you are able, and we confess it. Give us the courage to rest in the perfection of your cross. Give us courage to take your light to the dark places with our words and our lives for your glory and our joy. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.